One important distinctive of the Calvary Chapel movement, it's based on this goal of striking the balance, not drifting too far in either direction of a controversial topic. And, you know, I I remember learning this early on in my Christian faith because the guy that actually led me to the Lord Jesus, he was going to Calvary Chapel, uh, but he was also going to a Baptist church where there was a Calvinist who... Uh, was taking every opportunity to teach Calvinism. And so the the guy that led me to Jesus was also in process of becoming a Calvinist. And so then he was imparting that information to me as well and and, and wanting me to become a, a Sprolite or a McCarthian or, you know, a, a Calvinist. And, uh, and, and so I was looking into this, you know, and I was, you know, examining these doctrines of, of Calvinism and, and uh and then I was getting the other side of the story also, and, and I quickly had to learn the importance of striking the balance between two you know, doctrines that we find in the scriptures that seem to be in conflict, and yet it's a paradox that there's probably truth somewhere in the middle of all of this. And you know, Pastor Chuck goes into one example of this in, in this book and, and in this chapter, Striking the Balance. He talks about the charismatic gifts of the Holy Spirit as his first example. You see, uh, there are some Christians who reject the signifying gifts of the Holy Spirit, like tongues and healings and prophecies, and, and they argue that, you know, since we receive the, the fullness of the Bible, we no longer need the signifying gifts, and, uh, and, and so they uh, engage in what's called cessationism as they conclude that there's no longer a need for the signifying gifts. And the reason why is because, you know, we have the complete Bible and therefore there's no longer a need for charismatic gifts. Now, the main problem with this position is based on the fact that the New Testament epistles actually provide the church with the instructions we need for how we ought to exercise the signifying gifts of the Holy Spirit. What are those instructions there for if the signifying gifts are no longer needed in the church age? Clearly, the Holy Spirit, in prompting Paul to give us the foundations or floor plan for the church, well, the Holy Spirit intended for us to understand how to use the signifying gifts of the Holy Spirit here in the, in, in the church age, and therefore cessationism is biblically unbalanced. Uh, at the same time, there are what we call continuationists who believe in the continuing uh, gifts of these signifying spiritual gifts, and, and yet many continuationists, well, they hold a biblically imbalanced position as well. And the reason why is because they ignore the instructions that the Bible provides us for how we should operate in the gifts. You know, And so they, they love the gifts, they embrace the gifts, they want to use the gifts, but then they throw the instructions out on how the gifts ought to be used uh, in the context of the church. I like the way that Paul sums it up in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. It's there where he declares this. He says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or three at the most, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, 
as in all the churches of the saints. This is something that applies to all the churches of the saints. For how long? Throughout the entire church age. We're given instructions for the entire church age for how the gift of prophecy is supposed to function, for how the gift of tongues and interpretation of tongues is supposed to function. Therefore, uh, we have a biblical protocol for using the signifying gifts in the context of the Christian congregation. And what this means then is that there must be a biblical balance between cessationism and continuationism. And, And that balance is simply this, that the gifts are still in operation, but God is going to provide us with a way to order those gifts in such a way that it doesn't bring confusion because God is not the author of confusion. I like the way that Pastor Chuck put it in this book. He declares this, We do believe in the validity of the gifts of the Spirit and that these gifts can be expressed today, but we don't believe in excesses that so often accompany a freedom in the use of the gifts of the Spirit, so we avoid the controversy. Pastor Chuck was interested in avoiding the controversy that is created when people use gifts in a confusing way in the context of the church, and he was wise in, uh, in making that decision. We can see here that Calvary Chapel, by design, seeks to strike a balance between the extremes of unbiblical cessationism and unchecked continuationism. We believe in the charismatic gifts, and we also believe in the instructions that helps us to use these gifts in an orderly fashion. In similar fashion, we also strike the balance between Calvinism and Arminianism. And here's how Pastor Chuck puts it in this this chapter of uh, Calvary Distinctives. I quote him here. Another example of maintaining a balance on debatable issues is our approach to Calvinism. This is an area that people get very emotional about. We are neither five-point Calvinists, nor are we Arminian. Now, just to be clear, the five points of Calvinism have been summed up with the acronym TULIP, you know, for whatever reason. The T in TULIP, well, that stands for total depravity, which emphasizes the fact that we're born dead in trespasses and sins. Or in other words, we're born spiritually dead. The U in TULIP stands for unconditional election, which is based on the belief that our election is based upon the gracious choice of the Lord and nothing else. And and the L in TULIP, it stands for limited atonement, which is based on the belief that the blood of Jesus covers the sins of those who are elect and no one else. It's limited atonement, limited to those that God predetermined to choose or to, to elect into salvation. The I in TULIP stands for irresistible grace, which is based on the teaching that regeneration precedes salvation, that God regenerates you first and fills you with faith so that then you can turn around and believe, uh, showing that you are then, in fact, the elect. Uh, Finally, the P in TULIP stands for perseverance of the saints, uh, which is simply to say that the salvation of those who are elect is so secure that it's impossible for them to fall away. Now, as we consider these high-level summations uh, of the five points of Calvinism, it certainly seems like Calvinism is a biblical system of theology, and at the headline levels... Uh, you know, I think that we could agree with most of these points. You know, maybe maybe we would have issue with limited atonement, but but I think that at the high level, most Christians read these. You know, the, you know the the description of tulip and think, well, yeah, I, you know, I, I know verses that support all of this. 
And yet those who take a deeper dive into this theological position, well, it doesn't take long for them to discover that Calvinism actually, provo- uh, pro- it actually you know, presents us with a form of fatalism that doesn't really line up with the totality of Scripture. And so at the headline level, it seems biblical, but you keep drilling down in, into uh, what Calvinism actually is, and you, you quickly discover you know, that God is some sort of fatalistic God who's moving the chess pieces around, and, uh, and, and which totally robs us of free will. Now, in contrast to the five points of Calvinism, Arminianism also provides us with five points, uh, without an acronym, because I guess Arminians aren't that creative. But uh, <laughs> they were predestined to not be creative, I, I might say. But uh, Arminians first emphasize human free will, which affirms our ability to trust in Jesus Christ, despite the fact that we have a fallen nature. Then there's conditional election, which is based on the belief that God chose us for salvation because he looked down the corridor of time and foreknew which one of us would believe in Jesus and which wouldn't. Uh, And then there's universal atonement, which is based on the belief that Jesus bore the sins of everyone and not just those that he knew would believe. They also believe in resistible grace, which is based on the teaching that the grace of God can be resisted by unbelievers thereby enabling them to reject the will of God. And finally, Arminians believe that a Christian can fall from grace, which is to say that a born-again believer can then lose their salvation and become unborn again, which will then require them to become born again again. And if they lose their salvation again, then they have to become born again again again, you know, and so on and so forth. So, you know, as we consider all of this, it's sad to say that Protestants on both sides of this debate have been arguing for their preferred position since the 17th century. This has been debated since the 17th century, and thankfully I'm going to solve the whole problem today. So, (laughs) you know, it was back in the 17th century when the followers of John Calvin and the followers of Jacobus Arminius, they decided to set the record straight about which of them had the correct system of theology. And that's right, Christians on both sides of this issue have been arguing about this for the past 400 years, and, and, and they're still going strong. I'm sure you can find you know, discussions online happening even right now as we speak you know, of Calvinists and Arminianists arguing about this. And it's for this reason that Pastor Chuck, well, he sought to avoid the false dichotomy of these two extremes, and he did this by setting out to strike <clears throat> a, a biblical balance between Calvinism and Arminianism. Here's how Pastor Chuck puts it in the chapter, Striking the Balance. Here he declares, I don't take a dogmatic position on this because I believe that the Scripture teaches both the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. If you take either of these positions to an extreme, to the denying of the other, then you've got a real problem because the Scriptures teach both. But then you might ask, How can we reconcile them? I don't. I don't have to, he says. God didn't ask me to. God just asked me to believe. Now from this we can see that Pastor Chuck, he sought to strike a balance between these two extremes by affirming what is true in both systems of theology while avoiding the unbiblical extremes that are found in both systems. Is it true that God is completely sovereign over his creation? Well, yes, of course. There should be no doubt about it that God is sovereign over his creation. 
Is it also true that God has given every person free will within the boundaries of all possible counterfactual modalities? Yes, of course. Yes, it's true. I can't blame my sins on God. I can't just you know, give you know, the, the, the idea that, uh, well, I did X, Y, and Z because I couldn't do anything else. God predetermined it. You know, well, that's silly. Why would God punish us for being sinners if he's the one who made us do all the things that we did? So, yeah, God has clearly given us free will to engage in all possible counterfactual modalities. And while there are many who are trying to reconcile the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, Pastor Chuck simply decided to strike a balance between these two positions by insisting that there are things that a finite mind won't be able to understand on this side of heaven. Uh, Here's how he explains it in in this same chapter. He says this, and I quote him, "...trying to bring God within the confines of my intellect is a real lesson in frustration. (laughs) Try to understand eternity. Try to understand infinity. Try to understand the limitlessness of space. Try to imagine where the edge of space is. How far do you have to go out before you see the sign that says... Dead end, no exit, nothing beyond this point. I'm guessing if there is such a sign that it's Marvin the Martian that put it there, but that's just my guess. But seriously, we need to recognize that God is greater than what can be confined or understood in our limited minds. If you've ever uh, attempted to think about eternity future, living forever. I don't know about you, but it just freaks me out. It, it just brings me to, to a point of, of you know, uh, of I don't know, I, I don't want to call it anxiety, but it's just kind of like the, the brain starts short-circuiting and not in a cool 80s movie sort of way. But, uh, but Pastor Chuck here goes on to quote Isaiah chapter 55. In his explanation of striking the balance, He quotes Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, and here the Lord declares this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Without debate, the infinite mind of God is far more complex than we'll ever be able to imagine. And listen, it'll take eternity to explore the infinite mind of God. Don't imagine for a minute that when we receive our resurrected bodies that all of a sudden we know everything. It's not going to happen that way because we're still finite, though we're eternal. We have a beginning, though. And, and in the resurrection, we don't automatically achieve you know, the infinite mind of God. No. no. Only God is infinite. He is the only one with an infinite mind. So it'll take all of eternity to explore and get to know this infinite God who has an infinite mind. So when the Calvinists insist that the free will of man would diminish the sovereignty of God, think about that for a moment. That God's sovereignty could be diminished by my free will. Really? (laughs) That could happen? Clearly, the Calvinist is confused about this, that, that, that... the, the fact is this, that the Lord could remain completely sovereign while allowing humans to exercise the agency of free will. Our free will does not diminish his sovereignty. As a matter of fact, I would even argue 
that God is so entirely sovereign that there's no way for my free will to you know, controvert uh, his perfect purposes. And when the Arminius insists that God uses his foreknowledge to help him with the selection of election, well, they're clearly confused about the fact that God's sovereignty cannot be diminished by our decisions. Like if God wants to save you, and then looks down the corridor of time and sees that you don't believe in Jesus Christ, he's like, well, I, 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 you know, I can't be sovereign over this. I, I, I can't save this person because they're resisting my perfect will. Really? God's sovereignty can be diminished by what he sees down the corridor of time? Clearly, there are aspects of both theological systems which fail to line up with the whole counsel of God's word. And in an attempt to strike a balance, there was a 16th century Catholic theologian named uh, Louis de Molina, I, I believe is how you pronounce the name. I don't know. Is that how you say it? Is it Luis? Luis de Molina tried to harmonize the sovereignty of God and the free will of man by attempting to explain the omniscience of God. And, and just to be clear, the omniscience of God, this refers to the all-knowingness of our infinite God. He's all-knowing or omniscient. In other words, you know, God is an all-knowing God and therefore he knows everything that will happen. And not only that, he knows everything that could happen. In other words, God knows every possible outcome of every possible decision like Dr. Strange. It's incredible. He knows every possible decision that every possible person could ever possibly make in all possible realities. And and Molina calls this sphere of knowledge middle knowledge. So according to Molina, God not only has natural knowledge about all things that are possible and logically necessary, and he not only has free knowledge about everything that actually exists, but he also has this middle knowledge about every possible outcome of every possible decision. And while I most certainly agree with the belief that God is all-knowing in this sort of way, the theological system of Molinism goes further than, you know, than a simple theory on omniscience. As a matter of fact, Molinism asserts that God uses his middle knowledge, his knowledge of all possible outcomes and all the decision trees that branch off from there. He uses this middle knowledge to examine every possible timeline that could exist and then discovers that Tony Stark can only defeat, you know, okay, sorry. He, he looks down all the corridors of time, all the possible decision trees, all of, of the, you know, counterfactual modalities, and chooses the one that best expresses his ultimate goals and desires. And in my opinion, Molinism then fails to strike a biblical balance because, in my estimation, it, it, the, you know, this system of theology seems to incorporate the worst aspects of both Calvinism and Arminianism. Now, the reason I say this is because God is subjecting his sovereignty over creation to the finite decisions of humans. He's looking down the corridor of time and saying, well, all the decisions made on this timeline is, is what best lines up with what I want, and so I'll pick this one. Think about that for a moment now. The Lord pre-examines every possible timeline of human history, and then after examining every possible timeline, he chooses one that we can now never deviate from. He picks the one timeline out of all of them 
And now we're stuck on that one timeline according to his sovereign choice. And if it's true that we exist on a timeline that God has predetermined, well, it's a timeline that we're unable to deviate from no matter how hard we try, and all possible counterfactual modalities that you might choose today don't actually exist in reality. You can't really make those counterfactual decisions. While we're presented with the illusion then of having free will, we're fatalistically stuck on the timeline that God has predetermined. Now, uh, in light of this theology, I want to consider a statement that Paul presents in Acts chapter 17. If you would open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Here we find Paul, he's speaking to the philosophers there in Athens, Greece, and so he's, he's waxing eloquent with, you know, these really smart people who are there in Greece, you know, the the, the seat of you know ancient wisdom and and, and here he begins to to present them with a a, a, a Bible study if you will uh, and it's here in the midst of this Bible study where he informs them uh, about the predetermined plan of God look with me here at Acts 17 verse 26 here we learn that the Lord has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings for what purpose? So that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring." From this we can see here that God has in fact determined the pre-appointed times and the boundaries of our dwellings. In other words, he's the one who has predetermined when and where we ought to live. And yet these pre-appointed boundaries weren't designed to limit the freedom for us to choose actual counterfactuals. Because he says that we should. We should do what? That we should seek him. Not that we have to seek him, not that we can't seek him, but that there's potential here, that we should seek the Lord within the limits of these predetermined times and boundaries. God has pre-appointed the boundaries of our times and the boundaries of our habitations for a specific purpose, to give every single person on the planet the very best opportunity to seek the Lord in the hope, in the hope that we might grope for him and find him. This is not people stuck on a singular timeline that they can't deviate from. This is clearly God giving us opportunity to make choices freely within the boundaries of what has been predetermined. What this means, then, is that every counterfactual modality isn't merely an illusion for us. It's not merely an illusion introduced by God who is forcing us to exist on a timeline which we can never freely deviate from. No, instead, we really do have the ability to make free choices, which include the opportunity for every sinner to seek the Lord in the hope that we might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each person. Now, the Calvinists will be quick to insist that no one will ever initiate the search for our Savior, and they'll be quick to quote 
Romans chapter 3, where Paul tells us that there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. Wait a minute, what? Was Paul contradicting himself? Let's take a moment to ask here, is Paul contradicting himself? How can Paul encourage sinners to seek the Lord Jesus back in Acts chapter 17, only to then inform the Christians there in Rome that there's none who seek after God? How can he say, seek after God, though you never will? Well, in order to clear up the confusion, it'll help you to know that the Greek word, which was rendered seek, here in Romans chapter 3, well, it's used of those who initiate the search for someone or something. It, it, it speaks of those who are, are the originators of the search. Therefore, Paul was effectively saying there is none who will initiate the search for God. And, and he's correct about this. There isn't one single sinner who will, ever, who will ever wake up one day and in the midst of their fallen state, decide that they're going to initiate the search for God. And the reason why is because we are all born spiritually dead in our sins and trespasses. This is the basis for the Calvinistic belief in total depravity. But are we so totally depraved that we can't engage in a responsive search for the Lord? With this question of mine, listen, the Lord has determined the pre-appointed times and the boundaries of our dwellings. Why? So that we should seek the Lord in the hope that we might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Now, in this case, the Greek word rendered seek, it excludes, it's, it's the same basic word, but it, it excludes the prefix ek. And what this means is that Paul wasn't referring to the initiation of a search, but rather a responsive searching which was initiated by the predetermined plan of the Lord. So the Lord predetermines his plan, which then initiates our ability to then responsively search and grope for him. And that's why Paul encourages the, the, the uh, philosophers there in Athens to grope for the Lord. And just to be clear, it'll help you to know that the Greek word rendered grope uh, was used metaphorically in reference to those who mentally seek the signs and the symbols of a person or a thing. It's, it's almost kind of like someone that's in a dark place and they're, they're trying to feel their way around a room to figure out where they're headed. So in the context of Acts 17, Paul's encouraging the unbelievers in Athens, Greece, to spend time mentally considering the signs and the symbols of our Savior Jesus so that they might come to a place of saving faith. Now to sum all that up, Paul was correct to say that sinners will never initiate the search for God. And yet at the same time, he's also correct to encourage every sinner to exercise their free will by engaging in a responsive search for the signs and the symbols of our Savior, which can be found where? In the Messianic prophecies that reveal uh, who, uh, who Jesus is, and we find that in the Word of God. What this means, then, is that God remains sovereign over our salvation because he's the one who has determined our pre-appointed times and the boundaries of our dwellings. And not only that, but he's also the one who initiated our search, and he did this by sending the Holy Spirit to convict our hearts of sin and righteousness and judgment. And listen, he's the one who has given us the free will that enables us to then seek the Lord and grope for him 
though he's not far from each one of us. Now, with all this in mind, it seems clear to me that the hard determinism that's found within Calvinism and even, uh, I would dare say, Molinism, to me these are both unbiblical positions because uh, you know, the Bible tells us plainly what God has predetermined and mainly the times and the boundaries of our habitations as well as the, the one who would come to save us and the end result of those who accept and reject him. These things have been determined. But the idea that God is forcing us around like chess pieces on a board and that you know, he is the one who is in fact you know, causing us to, to make every single decision because we can't really have free will while his sovereignty exists... You know, that, that's just an unbiblical position. At the same time, we would also do well to re- reject Arminianism and Molinism. And, 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 and the reason why is because both of them present God as being subject to our decisions, that God has to look down the, the corridor of time and then make his decisions based on what he sees us doing. In order to further explain what I mean by this, I should remind you that both of these theological systems present us with a God who peers down the corridor of time. And of course, I'm talking about Arminianism and Molinism in this case. He he looks down the, the corridor of time. He then determines his plan, which is in response to our decisions. And in this way, the sovereignty of God seems to be diminished because he becomes subject to our choices. In this case, you know, uh, you know, I, I just want to ask, you know, does God determine his sovereign plan of salvation based on our decisions? You know, when he looks at Jacob and Esau, does he go, well, you know, Jacob, sure he lied, sure he deceived his brother, but he really wanted that birthright, and I can respect that, so I'll choose Jacob. But Esau, that hairy, stew-eating Esau, you know... Clearly, that's not the kind of person we want in heaven, right? So, you know, so to hell with Esau and to heaven with with Jacob. Is is that the way God does it? He looks down the corridor of time and sees Jacob and Esau and looks at their decisions and that's silly. That's just silly thinking. And in order to put a finer tip on on this question about God's decision-making process, I want to consider the issue of Jacob and Esau. Did did God actually, you know, uh, choose Jacob because Jacob chose his father's birthright? Does, does God look down the corridor of time and condemn Esau you know, because Esau didn't care about his father's birthright? And, and if so, then doesn't this make God submissive to human free will? And, and in, my, in my opinion, it most certainly does. It would make God submissive to human free will. I can't accept that. And, and at the same time, I also can't accept the Calvinist solution which presents God as being sovereign over salvation, and to the, to the degree that uh, those who don't want to be saved are dragged kicking and screaming against their sinful will you know, until they're regenerated and forced to believe in Jesus. You know, it's like we all have to belong to some sort of spiritual Me Too movement. I was dragged against my sinful will that wanted to go to hell and was forced to come to heaven. And the Calvinists would say, well, isn't that better? Okay. Why doesn't God do it for every person? I mean, if God so loves the world, why doesn't he drag every single sinner kicking and screaming against their will to heaven? Is this all based on the fact that God just willy-nilly loves Jacob and hates Esau? 
as I wrestled with these two positions early on in my faith, you know, I started to realize that Calvinism, Arminianism, and, and Molinism, they seem to all be man-centered systems of theology. I believe that all three of these are man-centered theologies. And one reason why is because Calvinism is all about the people that God chooses to save. I'm the chosen. I'm the elect. It's, you know, God chose me and not Esau, you know. So that's man-centered. Arminianism is all about God subjecting his choice to the the decisions of fallen men. So that becomes a man-centered salvation. And, and, And again, in my estimation, Molinism is just the worst of both worlds. I appreciate, you know, Molina's desire to strike a balance. I just don't, I think that he went to the worst sides of both rather than, you know, presenting us with what I would believe to be a, a more biblical-centered balance. And with all that being the case, I'd like to present you with a Christ-centered position, which I believe truly strikes a biblical balance. And first of all, it's important to understand that Jesus is the predestined one. And, and in this sense, I believe that this is a jesus centered solution to the to the, the the balance between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility uh, that that was the question I started asking back in uh, early 96 you know I started asking how you know how is Jesus the center or how is Jesus glorified through the doctrine of predestination that was the question I started asking and with that, I started you know, coming across verses like 1 Peter chapter 1. It's verses 20, and 20, uh, verses 20 and 21. Here Peter says this. He says, Jesus was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So... so Peter here is helping us to understand that you know, the predetermination is more about Jesus than it is about us. Jesus is the predestined one. Jesus was foreordained to be our Savior. And this was a decision that God made before the foundations of the world. And, and what this means then is that the Lord's predestined plan begins with God the Father's sovereign decision to send his only begotten Son so that sinners like us can be saved. The Apostle John shared something similar in Revelation chapter 13. It's there where he informs us that Jesus is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Think about that for a moment. Jesus is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. In other words, before the foundations of the world, when God the Father determined his plan of salvation... This plan included the physical incarnation of his only begotten son who was then sent to become our substitutionary sacrifice according to this predetermined plan. What this means then is that Jesus is the predestined one. Jesus is the predestined one. And and not only that, but listen, he is also the elect one. As a matter of fact, it's in Isaiah chapter 42, it's verse 1, where God the Father says this to Isaiah, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. From this we see that 
Jesus is not only the foreordained, predetermined Savior who was you know, chosen before the foundations of the world to come and die for our sins, but Jesus is also the one whom the Father elected to represent us at the federal level. Now, we understand that politically here in America. We've all elected people to represent us at both the state and, 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 and federal levels, right? Right now, you know, we have somebody representing us at the federal level uh, who is doing his things, right? <laughs> and and whether, whether you voted for Biden or not, uh, you know, he represents us at the federal federal level. Period. You know, when 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 you know he suntans on the beach, he's representing us at the federal level. You know, when 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 he he farts at a meeting in in UK, you know, <laughs> he's representing us at the federal level. You know, and and when he makes good decisions, he's also representing us at the federal level. Um, waiting for those, but so, but seriously, you know, our president represents us at the federal level. And therefore, you know, everything that he decides, it, it impacts us. We recognize this. He's the elected one, according to some, and, um, <laughs> and, and he, he represents us at the federal level. And that's what, you know, the president does. Well, you know, God the Father elected Jesus to represent us at the federal level. Praise the Lord. And in order to further grasp my point, I should take a moment to remind you that we're all born under the federal headship of Adam. When when we are conceived in the womb, we are conceived under the federal headship of Adam. When we are born and begin to walk the earth, we are under the federal headship of Adam. And, and, And that's bad news because Adam, well, he was cursed. Because of his fall in the garden, he was cursed. And what this means is that we're all conceived under the curse of original sin, which then results in the death of every person. The proof of my point? Well, it can be found in Romans chapter 5. There we learn that it's by the offense of Adam that death and judgment has affected every single person. Paul sums it up best, I believe, in Romans 5 verse 12. There he informs us that it was through one man that sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. According to Paul, we've all been affected by the original sin of Adam and Eve. And listen, this not only includes the promise of physical death, which will impact all of us unless you know we're fortunate to go up in the rapture, but listen, this also includes the imputation that results in eternal condemnation. Paul put it plainly in Romans 5, verse 18. There he declares, Through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. In other words, every human was conceived under the headship of Adam, and under the federal headship of Adam, the sin of Adam then is imputed, it's imputed or credited to our spiritual account because Adam represents us there in the garden. And it's for this reason that Paul assures us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that we all die in Adam. In Adam, we're all headed for death. In other words, every human is born under the federal headship of Adam, and as a result, Adam's sin has been imputed to his progeny, which includes us. 
And while this might seem entirely unfair, well, it's important for us to understand that God the Father you know, appointed the first Adam to represent us federally so that he could be equally just in appointing the second Adam, Jesus Christ, to represent us there on the cross so that sinners like us could escape the condemnation of the curse according to the federal headship of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, this is precisely the point that Paul is making in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's beginning at verse 21 where we learn that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In other words, God the Father sent his only begotten Son to receive the punishment that we deserve for all the sins that we've committed so that we can turn around then and receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness as his righteousness is imputed or credited to our account according to the federal headship of Jesus Christ. And listen, those who trust in Jesus have not only received the imputation of his righteousness, but we also receive all of the benefits that belong to those who are living under the federal headship of Jesus Christ. For example, it's in Ephesians chapter 1 where we learn that God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, we were chosen where? In Christ. We were born in Adam. But we were chosen before the foundations of the world in Christ. And Paul continues, in him we've been predestined to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Or or more simply put, listen, under the federal headship of Jesus Christ, we are predestined. It's incredible. But the federal headship doesn't just stop there. Remember, Jesus is not only the predestined one, and in him we are predestined, but Jesus is also the elect one, and in him we are elect. In Christ we are elect. This is confirmed in Romans chapter 11 where Paul helps us to understand that those who are elect in the Lord have embraced the election of grace. And it's in 1 Timothy 1 where Paul assures Pastor Timothy that those who have entered into the election of God first became followers of the Lord after receiving the word of God. So we receive the word of God, and in the reception of grace, we are followers of the Lord and therefore imputed the election of Jesus Christ. Those who trust in the gospel of the elect one have become elect according to the federal headship of Jesus Christ. Listen, it goes further. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. And so what does that make the born-again believer? An adopted child of God. Jesus is the Son of God, and in him, under his federal headship, we are adopted children of God. Paul put it plainly in Romans chapter 8, where he declares, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. In other words, when God looks down the corridor of time and, and you know, in his foreknowledge decides to send the predestined one so that those who enter into this relationship with Jesus Christ are then conformed to become what? 
adopted children of God because Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. God's predetermined plan includes the sanctification of those who trust in the Lord Jesus as the Holy Spirit conforms us to the image of the Father's only begotten Son. And in this way, those who trust in Jesus become the adopted children of God according to federal headship. I should also remind you that those who trust in Jesus become kings and priests of God Most High. That's what John tells us in the book of Revelation. We become the kings and the priests of God Most High. Why? Because Jesus is the King of Kings and Jesus is priest of God Most High. And under his federal headship, we become kings and priests of God Most High. To sum it all up, those who are under the federal headship of Jesus Christ, we've not only escaped the curse of Adam, but we've also become the predestined and elect adopted children of God who will eventually serve as kings and priests in the millennial kingdom of Christ. And as we consider the way that the federal headship of Jesus changes our entire position before God, we should take a moment to ask, then, well, how, how do we make this move? How do we make this move from the federal headship of Adam, which results in our curse, and the federal headship of Jesus, which results in our predestined election to become adopted children of God? Well, in order to answer this question, let's turn on our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. And as you're making your way to the first chapter of Ephesians, I just want to take a moment to address something that Pastor Chuck said in this chapter on striking the balance. Chuck shared his own struggles with the task of striking the balance between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And if you've read the chapter, then you know he actually took Arthur Pink's book on the sovereignty of God and chucked it across the room. I guess that's why they call him Pastor Chuck. But uh, <laughs> this is gold, guys. Come on. You, can, you were predestined to laugh. <laughs> But, uh, but it's understandable because Arthur Pink, if you've ever read Arthur Pink's Sovereignty of God, it is just theological garbage. You know, he actually says that, you know, effectively God forced Adam and Eve to sin in the garden. He has a secret will, you know, that is unrevealed until it's actually accomplished. And so while God told Adam and Eve not to eat the fruit, it was his secret will for them to eat the fruit. And therefore God can have a contradiction within himself, according to Arthur Pink. It's just ridiculous. It's what some might call nonsense. <laughs> Chuck shares his struggles. And he chucks this book across the, the room at, at seminary, and, the, and then he says this. He says, I cannot in my mind rationalize the two positions. I can't bring the two together, which is the problem that we so often have. It's like a railroad track. The two rails are running parallel, and if they come together, you're in trouble. So I believe them both even though I'm not able to reconcile them in my mind. But I don't have to anymore. I can be satisfied just to believe them without having to reduce them to the narrow limits of my intellect. Now listen, I totally agree that we'll never be able to fully grasp the infinite mind of God. I've already you know, put that forth as, as a fact. You know, we will never know everything that God knows. At the same time, I do believe that there is a, a biblical way to strike the balance here between the predetermined plan of God and the free will responsibility of man. And I believe that Paul provides us with the keys for uh, you know, solving this paradox here in Ephesians chapter 1. If you would look with me there at verse 11, here Paul declares, In him also we have obtained an inheritance being 
predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Here in these verses we find Paul, he's helping his audience to understand that God the Father predestined us in Christ according to the counsel of his infinite will. Not according to what he saw as he looked down the corridor of time. No, this is according to his counsel of his infinite will. And as we enter into this predetermined plan, we are then sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise you know, which brings us to the the, uh, the the belief that we have eternal security in our salvation, and I praise God for that. But how do we enter into this predetermined plan which God the Father determined according to the counsel of His infinite will? Where do we find the solution for that? What's well, there in verse 13? In Him you also trusted after what? After you were regenerated by the Holy Spirit and forced to believe? No. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So does regeneration precede faith? No. Faith precedes regeneration. And once we believe in the gospel of salvation, using our free will to engage in that responsive search, we are then entering into a relationship with the predestined elect one, and under his federal headship, we are predestined and elect in Christ. Jesus is the predestined Savior. And when we embrace him according to the gospel of grace, the Holy Spirit removes us from the federal headship of Adam and places us under the federal headship of Jesus Christ, and there he seals us into the mystical body of Christ as he continues to transform us according to the predetermined plan of God, which is to do what? To conform us according to the image of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Now, in light of these things, I'd like to suggest that Pastor Chuck, I think he was incorrect when he compared the sovereignty of God and the the responsibility of man to the two railroad tracks that should never cross. You know, he found comfort in the fact that the two railroad tracks will never cross, you know, until they cross tracks, you know, and, and, and then you have to have some, you know, some maneuverability there, right? And I just think it breaks down at that point. I, and I'd like to suggest that the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, they must cross. They must cross. And, and with that, I'd like to suggest a, a, another illustration here. I, I think that the, the two streams of thought here, the sovereignty of God and responsibility of man, they must cross at the cross. And so I like to compare these two streams of thought to the two beams of our Savior's cross, which 
cross paths there at Calvary. And to make my case, let's turn in our Bibles to, to, to one more passage here. It's found in Luke chapter 23. And as you make your way to the 23rd chapter of Luke's gospel account, I just want to consider the argument of those who insist that the predestined plan of God and the responsibility of man, they're, they're like two streams of thought that disappear over the horizon of our human understanding, and we'll never know where they cross. And they, they go on to encourage us that it's best just to, just to not to attempt to reconcile these two streams of thought since we really don't know where the paths cross and these sorts of things. And I, I'd like to suggest that the two streams of thought cross paths at the cross of Christ. As a matter of fact, I want to consider the cross of Christ Jesus, I, and I want to focus in on the two thieves, the, the two criminals that died on either side of our Savior. Look with me here at Luke's account, chapter 23, beginning at verse 39. Here Luke tells us that one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we, indeed, justly. For we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Here in these verses we find the balance between God's predestined plan and the responsibility of man. You see, it's here in this account of the crucifixion where we're presented with a perfect picture of the way in which these two theological streams of thought cross paths right there at the cross of Christ. I like to imagine the vertical beam of Christ's cross representing the sovereignty of God's predestined plan. That vertical beam you know, kind of presents us with the idea that God made a decision in heaven to predestine his only begotten son to become our savior and then sent Jesus from heaven to the earth to come in and accomplish this by dying on the cross for our sins, thereby providing us with the free gift of grace by which we might be saved. And it's for this reason that the Lord Jesus himself even revealed this. He says, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all to myself. That's what he said. If I am lifted up from the earth, speaking of the cross, I will draw all to myself. Now, the Calvinist wants that to mean people of all nations, but not every person. But that's not what Jesus said. He said, I will draw all to myself. But then this brings us to the horizontal beam of the cross. Because if Jesus truly is drawing all to himself and not everyone goes to heaven, then we must be able to resist his grace to some degree. And so here we find ourselves looking at the horizontal beam of the cross, which represents the responsibility of man. And knowing that Jesus was sent to draw all people to himself and, and that it's not his desire that any should perish, but desires all to come to repentance, well, we must realize that we've been called to engage in a responsive groping of God. We've been called to responsively seek the Lord in the hopes that we might grope for him and find him though he's not far from each one of us. And it's here in Luke 23 where we find these two options of God. We find two op the two options of this predetermined plan playing out. See, there's the criminal who was crucified on one side of Jesus, I would say on the right side of Jesus, who used his free will to 
you know, uh, to accept the grace of God. And on the other side of, uh, of the cross, we find the criminal who used his free will to reject the grace of God. And so you see free will playing out on both sides of the cross. And in light of this scenario, it seems to me here that the horizontal beam of Christ's cross, it helps us to see that we've all been called then to make a free will decision about the Messiah. Those who truly uh, trust in Jesus Christ are placed then under the federal headship of the predestined and elect one. While those who freely reject the grace of our Savior Jesus, they remain under the federal headship of Adam, which involves a curse. In this way, those unbelievers use their free will to choose to reject the predestined plan of salvation, and with their own free will, they've chosen to uh, accept the everlasting punishment of God. Now, in both cases, the predestined plan of God remains the same, that all should be saved in Christ Jesus. But not all will be saved in Christ Jesus because man has a responsibility. According to God's perfect plan, Jesus is the predestined Savior who stands ready to, uh, to receive every repentant sinner. And at the same time, God has also predestined us to use our free will to accept or reject the free gift of grace. And in this way, we strike the balance between the sovereign decision of God's predetermined plan and the free will responsibility of each human.